Okay, welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Tuesday, February 27th, and uh, around 12 o'clock in the afternoon. We are very privileged to have back on the podcast David Deckelbaum of TD Cowan. Uh, Cowan has been bought by Toronto Dominion Bank in Canada, uh, and he's going to talk about U.S. equity market sentiment, not only to lithium companies, but a bit like the broader EV thematic, because that's been a big headwind, you know, in the United States with, with Tesla and Rivian and a number of stocks down. But but more than that, uh, he's going to talk about post-earnings season. Almost all the earnings are out. Um, he, his stock, the specific recommendations on Albemarle, Arcadium, Piedmont Lithium, Lithium Americas, Lithium Americas Argentina, and Lithium Royalty Corp. Um, before we begin that, uh, I'm just going to mention Lithium Royalty Corp. I uh, just want to give a heads up or a shout out to our sponsor, uh, ticker symbol LIRC. It's on the Toronto Stock Exchange market cap, about $370 million Canadian. It has royalties uh, on over 30 companies, including you know, Sigma Lithium, as well as Winsome Resources. Uh, we'll have a bit more about that uh, later in this podcast. I also want to just remind everybody to uh, register their email at rkequity.com if you want to get our Lithium Ion Bull monthly uh, published uh, directly to your email box. And if you like this video, please you know, like and subscribe and comment. And also just let us know in the comments below you know, what you think of David's commentary. You know, do you agree with his stock ideas? And uh, what other guests and topics would you like to see Roddy and me cover on Rockstock Channel in the future? Uh, you could follow Rodney and me on X at Lithium Ion Bull and at Rodney Hooper 13. And of course, you could listen to audio versions of this uh, video on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we'd appreciate if you want further uh, deep dives with Rodney and me to consider uh, subscribing to us on Patreon at the $100 and $300 tiers. We had our group call. Uh, last week, and we have been undertaking our one-on-one -on -one calls with our Patreon sponsors, you know, in the past kind of couple of days. Before we go into uh, David, uh, his commentary, I'm going to make some introductory comments because uh, lithium uh, prices, you know, have been ticking up uh, a little bit. Uh, recall the uh, Sir John Templeton's famous phrase, you know, the next bull market, you know, is born on pessimism, then grows on skepticism. Uh, you know, matures on optimism and dies on euphoria, but uh, we're still, you know, in pessimism. Maybe we're growing on skepticism, uh, but importantly, commodity equities follow commodity prices. So a number of stocks are up 30, 40% off of their lows and lithium futures and spot prices have been ticking up. As I said, you know, the last few days uh, pushing over, you know, a hundred thousand renminbi um, in some cases and the futures markets are, are substantially in contango. Uh, with the CME, uh, with prices a year from now in the 19 to $20 range, you know, for the hydroxide up from, you know, 12 or 13,000 now, but lithium watchers are right to be skeptical. You know, is this a sustained rally or is it another head fake before another leg down? Goldman Sachs, who has called this market right, perhaps for the wrong reasons, reiterated their bearish lithium view last week, suggesting $11,000 carbonate by the second half. Rodney and many others disagree. With various USA and European headwinds, what happens to lithium prices and equities in 2024 will be dominated by demand and supply in China. On the demand side, there's been a lot of good news flow out of China uh, in recent days. 
CATL is painting a picture for battery prices falling below $50 a kilowatt hour. In 2014, Stanford professor and clean disruption guru Tony Siba predicted the market would offer 200-mile EVs for U.S. $11,000 by 2025, which would be cheaper than even low-end ICE vehicles. BYD, one year ahead of that curve, has introduced a Corolla killer in cars, priced as low as $11,000, in some cases $15,000 in China. These are attractive cars. We're hearing from you know a number of uh, our channel checks. These are not the glorified go golf carts like the Wuling Mini you know of two years ago. Rodney and I are speaking daily with our contacts in Asia, Europe, and North America. Procurement people at non-Chinese OEMs, Korea and Germany in particular, recognize the time is now to secure big long-term lithium supply as early as 2027. But will their bosses and bureaucratic infrastructure at these major OEMs enable them to seal more deals? I wouldn't be surprised to see some billion-dollar deals later this year. Strategic deals between major lithium producers and the biggest lithium purchasers in the world, potentially following GM's footsteps into large greenfield operations like Lithium Americas, going up all the way upstream to mining. On top of the supply cuts from major Western producers, which Rodney has discussed already and will continue here with David, there have been many positives on the supply side we're hearing from China in recent days, which I'll discuss in a second. But one negative that seems to remain in place is the destocking of batteries, a destocking caused by many battery and EV producers in China in particular going bankrupt or consolidating and having to sell battery inventory at a loss. The supply could put a wet blanket for another couple of quarters on what otherwise might be a sharp price rebound. Time will tell. But there's been a multitude of factors impacting China supply, potentially meaningfully. First, we're hearing that colder than usual weather is affecting Shanghai brine production. And there's been discussions that Ganfeng is having a huge retrofit for two months, and Tangxi is doing rotational retrofits at its plants. Sichun is suspending production until March 31st. This is quite normal you know, for lithium refiners to conduct these retrofits in the first quarter, so it may not be a long-term price support, but nevertheless, uh, some of our Asian broker contacts are, are, are saying this is underway. And there's been further news that China is stepping up scrutiny of over-exploitation of Shanghai brine, which could have a potential supply impact, and increased environmental scrutiny of Shangxi lipidolite. That's been confirmed, although we have yet to see official confirmation that CATL's lipidolite mine is shutting down. But definitively confirmed is the Ministry of Ecology and Environment, which is a central government level, has informed the local Shanghai government on February 26th that there was no material improvement in the over-exploitation of the brine. All Shanghai brine producers were named and shamed by this government body which could have a 2024 lithium supply impact, according to this broker, of up to 130,000 LCE. The scrutiny of the lipidolite mines could impact as much as 131,000 tons of supply. So combined, up to 260,000 tons of lithium supply at risk due to the government paying attention to over-exploitation of brines and you know, dirty lipidolite production. But again, there hasn't been uh, 
confirmation of the uh, CATL project being cut. The bottom line, according to this broker, environment and safety is a rising topic on the China's lithium agenda lately. It's not necessarily a paradigm shift, they argue, because China has always been more ESG aware than people think. But nevertheless, there's been a huge increase in supply based on this huge price rises that we've had in the last few years. And it's now caught the government's attention that it's not all clean and they're doing something about it. So this, on top of all the cuts that Rodney and David are going to talk about, we've seen from all of the Western producers uh, could have a major impact to lithium prices this year. And with that, welcome, David, back to Rockstock Channel. And uh, let's start, as I mentioned, with as the negativity, you know, which has been pervasive for over a year or longer you know, in the United States, you know, is it still there? What are you hearing? Um, because you've had lots of calls with investors, you know, post Al Marlin Arcadium's results. Yeah, sure. Um... Thanks, Howard, and thanks, Rodney, for having me back on. Um, well, I think on the institutional side, which is where most of our customers are, I think there's still a relative pervasiveness of negativity. Um, and, and I think it's not so much that things would get precipitously worse. I think it's more just trying to time or really ascertain the duration of this, you know, arguably lower than incentive price levels um, and, and how long it would take to, you know, in your opening comments around just business cycles and the next bull market being born out of pessimism. Um, it's just a matter of how long is this pessimistic period going to last? And I'd say it's still very much present. I think there's still, there's so many external forces that fact here, right? We're in an election year in the United States. I think you've undeniably seen um, you know, foreign GM and some others pushing out production lines. Um, you've seen some delays with battery plants. Um, I think like the entire construct of the IRA, like the pie in the sky prognostications of really building out, um, you know, a, a very secular supply chain um, ex-China, you know, some of those expectations are being rationalized. So I, I think it's, it's that, that pessimism hasn't, hasn't completely abated just yet. Um, but you know, we obviously are coming off of a time where but the U.S. was up 45% last year in terms of EV deliveries. I think it's, we're not going to see those levels in 2024. Um, you know, I think we, we all look at like EV deliveries as an indicator. And I think holistically across the world, those aren't disappointing data points. But I think, I think that there's, there's so many other questions, a lot of it just around the timing of the supply chain and whittling down the inventories that we see just both on the 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 uh, the lithium side, but also on on the battery side. Do the U.S. Um, investors, you know, are they paying attention so much, like what's happening in China, or are they, you know, they're still thinking about, you know, Ford, GM? What's interesting, Morgan Stanley had this chart that, like, Ford and GM's stock price actually has been performing pretty well, you know, but Rivian, uh, Tesla, and everything that kind of EV correlated uh, has just continues to be smashed. Ford and GM are pivoting to hybrids and, you know, internal combustion engine cars, right? So is it like, is there a belief that, you know, it's, things are going to, you know, the whole EV thematic is, is, is just, it, it's not going to happen as fast or it's not going to be that significant um, long-term, right? Yeah, I, I think, 
Look, I, I think that most investors pay attention to what's happening in China, right? But really, the bull thesis of a couple of years ago was predicated on ex-China proliferation. And those expectations are moderating. And look, I think the fact is we all have to be frank with ourselves. And it was always much more pragmatic, especially in the United States, to have more hybrids in the ecosystem than full BEVs. We don't have the adequate charging infrastructure here. Um, and, and I think, look, it's, it's interesting at the same time, a couple of years ago, uh, manufacturers or OEMs like Toyota, um, you know, were being heavily criticized for their comments around BEVs. And now they've found some novel applications for hybrids, um, and some other battery chemistries on, on the BEV sides. I think it's just a matter of you're seeing a greater share taken from hybrids, which inherently is, is obviously worse for lithium demand, uh, in, in terms of a factor of lithium intensity. Um, but. You know, undoubtedly, like the the total NEV penetration this country is going to continue going up. I think it's just a matter of how large you really need that supply chain to be in the United States, and what price do you need on the lithium side to adequately adequately compete with China? Because I don't think that most investors that were looking at names like Albemarle or looking at names like Liven before they merged with Allchem or even looking at Allchem prior or so many of the others. I don't think that their thesis on the long side was to be serving the Chinese government and Chinese battery manufacturers. Okay, great. So do you think it's a good time to buy lithium stocks? And if so, in order of your preference, uh, let's go through those. Which is your top pick? And would you be allocating fresh capital now or should we wait? So... <laughs> <laughs> the, is, it is a good time to buy. What are your options, right? Compared to compared to every other option that you have in the marketplace, uh, I, I think you have see, seen a a historical amount of bloodshedding. However, I still think that you still need to see some incumbent producer pain, which has not happened yet. Um, and I think that what you've seen coming out of earnings is that many producers that are, you know, incumbents right now, like the large Australian spasmin miners did not cut very dramatically. And I would imagine, you know, and, and, and if anything, you're seeing, and I know Rodney, I see your head because obviously we've seen cuts at green bushes. We've seen Wajana being pushed out, but we didn't cut anything. Um, and you know, I think you're seeing some contentment to keep going along here and just take a wait and see approach. Look, if spasmin prices, if you stockpile here, and chemical prices perhaps recover into eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars a ton. Are you going to see spasmin pricing going back up to fourteen hundred dollars a ton? I don't know. Um, I think, in terms of timing, like right now, you are seeing, I think, some short squeezes in the equity market, which is a logical seasonality kind of post Chinese New Year celebration. But I think that there's still a lot of questions that need to be answered here. I think if you have a very long term framework. Some of these names, I do not think that you can supply a market that's going to have a 20% plus Kager on the demand side through 2030. I don't care what your, the Pitolite prognostications are or what you're expecting of Chinese brine. You cannot meet that demand with lithium pricing for $14,000 a ton. Um, so I think from the long-term perspective, it, it is a very opportune time to be building a position, but I think that you might have to hold your nose for the next six to 12 months until you can see the deck reset a little bit more. Okay. I have a very long-term view um, and paddle long-term view. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
You know, I bought, live and, I bought live and at the uh, IPO, um, you know, it's around the IPO, you know, so it was $17. Uh, it's now you don't exactly know what it was. Um, I forget exactly because they merged now, but you know, Album all Roddy and I interviewed Luke Kassam in the middle of 2019, you know, and the stock was at its bottom around 50, which was lower than what Album all paid for Rockwood. It was as high as, you know, 330, I think in November of last year. So between 50 and 300, um, over five years. So long-term investor, right. But lithium has proved time and time again, you know, that you, sh you know, you should trade the stocks, right. right. Not, not just be a long-term investor. Right. Because things no. do get overbought. So you're basically saying, it sounds like you're saying you don't believe this rally is sustainable and there could be another like down, this could be a head fake and you might be able to pick up album all cheaper in six months time or Arcadium. Well, I think you asked earlier, just on, I think that we're entering this market where you really have to be selective on who you're investing in right now. Um, which is why we favor Arcadium right now. Um, you know, I think it's- That's it's, your topic. That's, that's your, our, that's our topic in the lithium space. Okay. Um, why? Why? For one, like right now, you think about like business cycles, the worst possible situation you could be in right now is a developing producer that just started producing, right? Because you're, you're going to be in a negative cash margin and you're going to be burning cash at a precipitous rate and you can't stop. If you're a developer that's bringing on something in 2028 and you're already funded, you're completely agnostic. In fact, you'd probably love to see your competition that's out there now dying, right? So if you're a Lithium Americas or even like a, a Lithium Argentinas, which is like ramping right now, there's a lot less capital risk to, to what you're going to be uh, enduring over the next couple of years. Um, obviously, with Lithium Americas, it's a different story because you're going to be much more contingent on DOE financing. Um, but in the case of Arcadium, for instance, which is a larger cap incumbent producer, our belief is that, you know, you had this, this coincidence of you've already spent money expanding Solar Umbre Del Marto. You know, they're delaying that second phase of expansion. You've already spent money expanding Olorose. You've already, you know, started spending money at Namaska. Wabuchi is being pushed out now six, nine months. You have flexibility with pushing out James Bay. And all of this to say is if you look at their guidance from last week, they have the ability, especially with the pro forma cash, that's 892 million at the end of the year with the all chem deal pro forma. Arcadium now is going to outspend maybe $150 million this year. So you're never running into a situation where, you know, there, there's some fire alarm bells going off here. Or you need to raise external capital. You can make it through the other side where a bull market is going to be inflecting. And then behind that, you already have growth that you've been investing in. So we look out to 25 using more mid-cycle pricing, and we see this stock trading closer to six and a half times EBITDA on 25. We contrast that to the larger income in like Albemarle, which we're more uh, market, market perform on right now, um, because as you're commissioning new conversion facilities, you end up being in a higher cost period of time, and you're going to be reliant on more feed to hit customer qualifications and commitments. Uh, and there's a little bit less flexibility with what your spending profile is now. I mean, you know, I think that's going to be one of the questions that Alvaro is going to have to answer in the next couple of years is, you know, can they get to a level where they're actually spending within cash flow and they aren't increasing their leverage ratios? Jumping in here from the editing room to tell you about Lithium Royalty Corp. 
Lithium Royalty Corp is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium-focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher-grade, lower-cost projects from exploration to production, LIRC covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more, visit lithiumroyaltycorp.com. The reality is with lithium in the infancy, you know, and with a very high compound growth, but we've seen massive volatility in, shall we say, spot prices, in contract prices. They, they might have flaws and caps and a slightly different profile. How do you look at the, at the valuation multiples of these companies when we're in an earlier phase and we've got much wider volatility than an iron ore or a copper or what have you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we talked about this, you know, when pricing was $80,000 a ton in the spot market of these names are like discounting $20,000 a ton. Like, why aren't they discounting 30? It'd be a home run. And, and I think <laughs> at the end of the day, the market is, is still a baby, right? But you're a million tons a year right now. That's triple what we were a couple of years ago. You're going to triple again in seven years. So maybe you'll be a big baby by 2030. But I think that you have to pick a point again where it gets back to like incentive cost curves. And I think if you look at every single project, there's a difficulty with assessing Chinese lipidolite because you're going to have a large portion of that market that's going to be price agnostic because they're vertically integrated all the way up to the battery manufacturer. However, you know, you're not talking about a million tons of LCE equivalent on the lipidolite side. I think that you have to look at things, assuming a mid-cycle price, whether it's 16 or 18 or $20,000 a ton, if you start running through that math, honestly, through most DFSs, you're going to find negative IRRs. And, you know, I think when you're assessing real value here, it's, it's pick a point, you know, choose your production levels, flatline it now for several years and apply your long-term price to it. And that's how you can find a good pivot point around intrinsic value. And then if you feel like near term, there's something persuading you to be much more optimistic or pessimistic than that, then trade around that level. That's how we determine our price targets. That's how we set it, like what our net asset valuations are. But, you know, I think, I think every day, I, I don't think over the last couple of years, um, the question of what incentive pricing has changed at all. You know, I think it's just, you've seen that near term volatility of supply coming on the market when it wasn't needed. And you've seen demand spikes at times that were unforeseen, but I don't I, think you've changed uh, the underlying economics in the industry. So David, as a follow on, part of what we've seen here is China's reaction to the IRA, to, to European initiatives, etc. So they've got the Guangzhou futures physically settled. You've had this epidemiologic brine, et cetera. Does the increase in Chinese activity, if you look at how much is produced within China, it's picked up again. Does that yep. again affect how you with your evaluation multiple on an ex-China company? I think that, uh, to some extent, I don't think that it changes very much because again, you know, these are going to be global companies like Albemarle, Arcadium, they all have operations in China as well. Um, and 
even if you're serving the Chinese market, there can still be quite a bit of margin growth experience there over time. I, you know, to, despite the fact that China's domestic production is going to increase every single year and their market share is going to be growing, I don't think that that necessarily increases, you know, the risk factor applied. You know, if anything, especially as you go through election year, like the more control that China has over the market, the more increased geopolitical risk that you have investing in a space like this. And if there's any sort of supply disruptions in any part of the value chain, um, you know, that, that creates, I think, an interesting risk factor to consider when you're investing on the lithium side. And if, if you, if I were to ask you, um, in terms of making OEMs and EV offerings competitive, what do you think is the look through lithium price, which is a ceiling above which the economics, you know, the companies lose money. It doesn't work. We, we know as well below 80, but what's that number? What's in your mind, that number, what can they bear? What can yeah. they bear for everyone in the food chain to eat? Yeah. I still think that if a North American OEM can produce a battery, um, you know, sub a hundred dollars that you can be cost competitive with an ICE vehicle over time. Um, and you know, I think at those levels you can still allow for very healthy mid twenties to mid thirties, you know, per kilo LCE pricing. Okay. So that's consistent. You know, if, if, if lithium could somehow kind of like level off at $25,000, right. You know, I mean, somehow double from here. Yeah. That'd be, yeah. yeah that'd be and, and just stay there. Right. Like, <laughs> cause, it, Cause it overshoots on the downside. It overshoots on the upside. I'm not saying go to 50 or 60, but just like be more predictable and level than, um, I think higher multiple should ensue for these companies because you're going to have less volatility, you know, in their earnings. Uh, so that raises an interesting point that Rodney brought up, which I think is really something to be monitoring in the next few years, right? Is that you guys raised the point that like the Chinese portion of production in the market has increased precipitously over the last year. You've had the Gangshou futures exchange. You've had much more volatility of the spot market. Coincidentally, right after the time where every major producer tore up their fixed price agreements and floors and collars and ceilings and went to spot pricing, you know, that's not necessarily a coincidence, right? So I think that as you evolve through this and you start talking through customer relationships, I think that, that the GMs of the world still value surety of supply. And I think that they would probably prefer to pay a fair price. So it will be, I think it'll be interesting, you know, Arcanium obviously still has some fixed price agreements that they've set at what they believe the incentive price is for the industry. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see another round of some sort of negotiation, especially with large offtake customers to institute more of this collared strategy that would reduce that, that volatility band, because obviously going to hundred percent variable pricing is not the best way to protect your investors. No, uh, highly variable pricing is, uh, is commodity like pricing. That's like Chris Ellison, Minrez, he wants to be at like iron ore and he doesn't get a specialty chemical multiple. He treats it like a commodity. And, um, that is what by moving, as you said, to variable as, uh, Almiral did, um, has increased the volatility of their earnings. Uh, another reason for them to have a discount is you say they're global companies, but the, yeah, their operations are in China. Their operations are in Chile. 
um, in Arcadium, you know, in Argentina. So these are risky emerging market, you know, discount, you know, and if the demand is all out of China, which is opaque, um, another reason, you know, for a discount. Uh, but, but on that, uh, uh, I do want to just, again, the earnings have come out. You do have specific recommendations. I want to go through like what you've written in your research, sure. um, you know, which you did for Arcadium. What, what's your sense? So on Arcadium, you know, Paul Graves is now the CEO, you know, on the call, um, you know, now he's dealing with Australian analysts who are covering um, yeah. you know, Allchem, right? So that's yeah. a, a new dynamic for Paul to be like interacting with. Um, these guys know lithium, you know, in, in, in the way they look at lithium is different than, you know, the, the Western, uh, like analysts like yourself who, who are not as well versed in, in let's say mining, you know, et cetera. Plus, you know, Allchem is a 15 year old company, you know, has large retail shareholder base, you know, in, in Australia, but it had some institutions who were like against this merger. It wasn't like I'm hearing, you know, uh, our listeners and viewers, you know, from the Arcadium side, you know. Some of them didn't love the merger. And from the time it was announced, to the time it was actually consummated, this was supposed to be two $5 billion companies, you know, merged to 10 billion and, and you know, it emerged as, as one $5 billion company, which reminded me of when Western Lithium and Lithium Americas merged, it was a 75 million, 75 million, 150 million, you know, five months later, um, it was, uh, it was 75 million again. And people said back then, you know, congratulations, congratulations, you now have two unfunded projects, right? right. And you could argue that that's the case, um, you know, with, uh, in Quebec, you know, with Arcadium, right? Like they, they now, yeah, it's a bigger company. It has more resources, but Paul Graves is now managing, you know, many, many, many projects, um, you know, including, you know, Hard Rock, which has not been, you know, in a historic sweet spot, uh, uh you know, of, of his at FMC or, or Arcadium. What are investors, you know, are you talking to investors in Australia, you know, now that, um, uh, this merger has happened and it just, like, just comment on, you know, the dynamic within the share structure now, uh, you know, of Arcadium and how that might or not, might not impact, you know, the share price dynamic. Yeah. So well, first off, I'd say Australian investors have mandates, especially on the institutional side to invest in Australian companies. So once this merger was consummated, so you, I, I think you've already seen a lot of Australian holders that are out in the stock simply from the fact that it's not domiciled in Australia anymore. Um, second, you know, yeah, like Australian analysts and I think Australian investors, you know, they, they're much more used to, I think, looking at, at lithium through the lens of, of mining. And as a result, many Australian equities, I think, want to be listed outside of Australia because they don't want the mining multiple. So there, there's, there's a double-edged sword to it. Um, I think, you know, like the, the Arcadium future path, you know, one, you brought up the fact that like, yeah, as you combine these two companies, they were supposed to be, you know, this mega cap company, but this, this merger was also happening during a, I don't know, an 80% downturn in the spot market. So, um, I, I don't think that this was necessarily the, the, the doings of management that caused the collapse of, you know. The market price and and now i think like you you have had i think a tremendous amount of shareholder turnover on the go forward basis and look i can't say that all chems management would have done a better job through this downturn it's not as though there would have been better cures and they would have definitely had to have pushed out james bay development 
And especially if there's no visible conversion facility along with it. And Arcadium offers them the potential to co-locate something at Beckencore to convert both Wabuchi and James Bay. I think there's a lot of lit, there's a lot of logical synergies um, with and, and and timing that appropriately. I think that you would be insane to bring on a Spajman project in Canada and just send everything over to China to be converted, uh, especially in such a tenuous market like the one that we're in today. Uh, or if you're going to be in one that's fairly balanced. Um, You've already seen Arcadium obviously uh, cut back production at Mount Catlin uh, and try to focus on improving cash costs there. And you know, look, you're already in. I think Paul acknowledged on the call you only have two to three years left of mine life there. So why why waste it when you're generating negative cash margin? Um, I don't think that there's a whole lot of like credible critiques that you can take with what Paul Grave and his management team has done with the pro forma, considering that this deal just closed. I think that there are quite a bit of synergies, especially in Argentina. You're literally in the same brines. Um, I think taking a step back and delaying some of the expansion so that you can see if you can find more optimized ways to do this uh, over time is going to prove itself out. And, and by the way, you know, even in, in their low cycle case of $15,000 a ton LCE, which is not too far out from where we are today, you're still looking at mid thirties EBITDA margins. That's not a bad place to be for a business. It's a very good place to be. Um, and uh, Albemarle also put out, you know, a sensitivity analysis, uh, fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars a ton. So your your skepticism on Albemarle is that there's just more capex and execution risk um, consuming free cash flow than at Arcadium. Is that... I think it's a skepticism. I think that there's a relative value argument. You know, we show Albemarle trading in many multiples above where Arcadium is, but I also think there's a coincidence of where you're at in your business cycle right now. And, you know, undoubtedly, a lot of the growth that Albemarle is experiencing right now is on the conversion side, which inherently is going to be lower margin in the market like this today. Um, there is quite a bit more outspends this year. I think they're trying mm -hmm. to offset that with uh, some working capital releases this year that hopefully don't have the outspend as significant. They're still targeting right a 10 to 20% type of growth CAGR. And I think that that assumes that, that Wajina continues to expand. It assumes that Greenbushes comes back online to full capacity and continues to expand. You already have the Solari Yield Enhancement Project in Chile that's being baked in the growth numbers over the next couple of years. And then you have longer term ambitions about, you know, there's the, would you build a facility like the Richburg, South Carolina Megaflex facility in an environment like today? Probably not. Um, so I think that there's just a lot of what ifs in the Albemarle model that, that probably require a higher lithium price to really be competent in Albemarle relative to an Arcadium right now. Okay. And what's your target price on Arcadium? Oh, it's $10 a share. So you're at you know, four seventy-five. More than, or something more than like double. That. Okay, and Albemarle and one hundred and thirty dollars a share. One hundred and thirty. So we're already yep. at that. So that's really you know, wow, that's a big difference. Okay, uh, if you're just going to hold one Arcadium, you know, you think is 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 going to double. Um, these are twelve month targets. I I assume. Yes. Yep. Okay, so let's talk about Piedmont, which was your top small and mid cap pick for a long time. Um, and uh, we're an advisor and big shareholder, or I have been, you know, shareholder in, you know, in Piedmont for for some time. You know, talk about you know, long term investing. I have taken some profits along the way, but um, uh, there's big fear uh, of dilution at 
at Piedmont, which hit the stock precipitously, you know, as everyone was speculating, you know, Arcadium, they shut down Mount Catlin, you know, Core shut down Finnis, you know, there's an, an, an ongoing fear, you know, will they shut down North American lithium? You know, you downgraded Piedmont ahead of the earnings announcement. You've now listened and participated and asked questions, you know, of Keith and, and Patrick, um, and then you published a note. So could you just articulate, you know, what, what is your view, um, on, you know, after the sell down of, of Siona shares, you know, what their cash balances are and, and, you know, what, what, what's your recommendation for, you know, should we buy Piedmont? Yeah, sure. Look, Piedmont's fates are going to be tied to the fate of Lithium macro. Um, and I think if, if you rewound to when prices were, you know, yeah, I and concentrated wasn't too long ago. It was two thousand dollars a ton, right? And they had they had a locked in floor price out of NAL at nine hundred dollars a ton that they were paying on the cost side. So if you're gonna make an eleven hundred dollar a ton, you know, well, thousand dollar a ton spread on the hundred and thirteen thousand tons a year of their offtake portion, you know, you had you had a pretty healthy line of sight to the amount of EBITDA and cash flow that they were going to be able to use in order the funds not just to build out of Iwoya, which is not substantial for them over the next several years because FID isn't expected there until 2025, but also certainly longer term with Tennessee lithium. Uh, and and I think look, fact is today with Spajman pricing sub a thousand dollars a ton, um, you know until their offtake agreements kick in with with LG and Tesla. And, you know, they're delivering at more favorable pricing. Um, yeah, I think you're going to experience, obviously, this quarter was weak just from a pricing adjustment perspective. That's going to continue into the first quarter. And I think Keith has taken very proactive actions to, to basically just play defense and elongate the balance sheet. That's why you would sell down, you know, your non-core equity stakes and, and obviously Sayana sell them down in Atlantic. And I think the combination of them, I, I want to say that they have something around $70 million dollars pro forma on the balance sheet of cash. I think he outlined, you know, you know laid out a plan where, uh, you know, capital spending this year is going to be somewhere in the 30 to $40 million. Um, so, so obviously, you know, there's some time element there where, you know, without external capital in this environment today, you know, it's going to last them a couple of years until he'd have to tap the market. So I don't think that there's necessarily a credible near-term fear of dilution, but on the opposite hand, to get out of where they are today, you are going to start needing to see a source of cash flows. And to your point, we don't know what's going to happen with NAL. You have Sayana and Piedmont, you know, collaboratively reviewing operations there. I think they both said that they're they're focused on getting costs down by, as I think, building a storage dome. I, I think that there's there's many things that they're looking at, but ultimately, um, you know, if price persists where we are today, if you don't get some sort of correction, I, I think they are going to be faced with some pretty hard questions around, you know, do you curtail production? Do you go into care and maintenance? And and, and I think there's a lot of elements of what's a $13,000 a ton, $14,000 a ton. You're not going to build Tennessee lithium today. It's not going to make economic sense to do. Carolina lithium, you know, I think it is still facing obviously permitting questions. Um, but but ultimately, look, this is a stock that can play defense for a while. And many of these names we talk is you're below the incentive cost curve level now. So now it's a question of duration. And, you know, undoubtedly, we think lithium pricing is going to be higher in the long run. Uh, they just need to figure out a way to get to the other side. And I think that they're doing that. But, 
if you compare it to other relative investments right now that we cover, I think it's fair to say that you're taking less risk, certainly with other names like Arcadium or those that haven't necessarily started producing yet, which, you know, is just coincidentally unfortunate for, for Keith and the Siona folks that just brought on NAL last year. So there's more risk in a company that's in construction uh, than there is in something that's you know, longer dated. But like Lithium America's Thacker Pass, okay, they haven't announced their earnings yet. They say they're in construction, right? Yeah. Um, but they're not really in full construction, right? Because they're right. waiting to get like fully funded. So um, what's your, what, so actually, what's your price target on Piedmont? Yeah, $20 a share now. So $20 we, a share and it's $13.5 now. So nearly yeah. a double. Yeah, so, but the magnitude yeah. of the drop, I think, has even surprised us as we took a more cautious stance. But you know, obviously there, there's there's a lot of questions that need to be answered out there. And the, the, the $20 is based on what? Is that a multiple of EBITDA? In no, the 20, $20 is based on if we... If we assume like our long-term pricing achieves $24,000 a ton and you build out Tennessee lithium over time and MAL is back to producing a spasmin concentrate that's selling, you know, in the high, call it $1,800 a ton range or choose whatever multiple you think is appropriate relative to chemicals, um, you know, would be just blowing down those cash flows over time on the development side and obviously develop a UWIA in the same framework. And we, we don't include Carolina lithium in that valuation right now. How would you value that if it were to come through the permitting? We have in our model, what we think, you know, Carolina would be capable of doing, um, but the combination of building a, a mine and then obviously building a conversion facility on top of that, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, keeping in mind. It's not as though the company can afford to do multiple projects right now without multiple loans. You know, I'd have to look specifically at my model for where that would be. But if you've got a permit, that's going to be a significant positive catalyst for the equity. I would view the way I view it, it is my own opinion. I don't know that I'd give any value at the moment for Tennessee or even Carolina, you know, uh, Ghana, you can value relative to where, you know, um, Atlantic is, is valued, but on the North American lithium, if you think $1,800, you know, uh, spodumene is possible by 2025, you know, 2026, and then that this mine survives, you just do the math. That's a couple of hundred million dollars of cash flow, which is trading out of 250 million, you know, market cap. It's more yep. times forward cash flow. So if you actually take a view, I believe spodumene prices are going to, you know, be this price. And, and if you look at other companies like Sigma Lithium or Hilbera, um, there's an implied spodumene price in their valuation. And if you think Piedmont's not going to have to dilute because they have sufficient cash, uh, you know, and North American lithium survives, that's the big question. Does North American lithium switch off? Are those cash flows? And um, Keith was quite optimistic, I think, um, articulated an optimistic view. They haven't just made a decision, but seems better than 50%, you know, that um, you know, with this crush war dome and the recoveries that their improved recoveries, you know, December was the best month, you know, ever for production right. that they're, this right. isn't like a Finnis like situation or core Finnis like situation Yeah, from what I'm hearing. Um, and James Brown at Sayana hats off to him. Uh, he's done this before, you know, with Altura, yep. you know, he's built, he's built mines. Okay. So, but lithium Americas, which is trading at 650 million market cap, right? 
they have a binary outcome here, don't they? They get the loan, right. you know, the market's pricing in a high probability, not only that they get the loan, you know, and then they get the um, further GM investment, right? But but then what happens, right? Like, you know, is what's the, there's yeah. the number of years of construction. So like, what's your target price on Lithium Americas and how do you model, how do you- yeah. We have an that? $8, we have an $8 share price target on Lithium Americas and- It's also nearly a double. Yeah, so- okay. If you, and, and again, I think it, it, it is highly binary on receiving a DOE ATVM loan, right? And that application has been in the works now for, you know, well over a year. Um, I think that they're probably the most advanced of any of the upstream side of, of, a, of a loan of that scale with the DOE. I think that they're at the final portion of just crossing the T's at this point. You know, the, the DOE needs to get over the hurdle of one, just execution risk and operational risk, in addition to economic risk. Again, you know, remind everyone, the DOE is not issuing charitable grants. They need to get paid back on these loans. And these loans are quite onerous uh, in, in, in terms of being the most senior portion of your capital structure, et cetera. Obviously, once you receive a loan from the DOE, relax, that would trigger the second tranche of investment from GM on the equity side. And when you get back to economic considerations, GM provided a floor in their offtake agreement with Lithium Americas at Thacker Pass. So the economics for the DOE shouldn't be a concern. They've obviously been out to the mine and they've had a pilot plant running in Reno now, now for some time, and I think have a demonstration facility. So presumably it's gotten past the execution risk, not to mention the fact that the DOE has written billions and billions of dollars to loans that I would argue for companies that are far lower quality than Lithium Americas, but we don't need to go into that right now. Um, so I, I think it's a matter of, and, and that's not on the Lithium side, by the way, but um, as a digression, like this is a binary outcome. I still think that you should have extremely high confidence that this, that this loan is received. You can question what the, the proceeds will be, right? This is I think the expectation is that you're going to be one and three quarter billion, two billion. Um, but at that point, then to your point, yeah, you're going to be in, in construction mode for a few years, but you're going to be fully funded. Um, so I would expect that if they get the loan, the stock appreciates towards where my price target is of $8 a share. And then from that point, you know, you're, you're going to be somewhat of a function of lithium macro and the pace of development on the construction side. And right now, you know, you're really just in early works construction. Okay, so basically, you think the stock doubles uh, on the catalyst of the high probability that they're going to get a very large DOE loan and not need any more dilution other than you know the the GM. Portion. That's right. That's right. Okay. I, look, it, it's even if you need to raise two hundred fifty five hundred million dollars over the course of a few years, you wouldn't necessarily need to do that today. Um, and it's not to say that. You know, if they receive one and three quarter billion dollars and they need $2 billion to make ends meet with that project, you know, you're still in the game and you're practically fully funded. You can bring in more partners. GM can come back. Like they're going to own a significant portion of this company going forward once that second equity tranche comes in. So I think it's, if you de-risk the financial side of the business with that loan, then, then, you know, very confident you'll see. You know, almost a double in the equity. Okay. 
And uh, Lithium America's Argentina, they have not yet reported. Uh, they do have a new CEO, uh, a good yep. friend of mine, uh, not Rodney and mine, uh, Sam Piggott, who is six years at Ganfeng. Uh, so have a very high um, degree of uh, confidence in him as a human being. This is a gigantic step <laughs> of a role uh, for him to be CEO. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, to watching that. But uh, he knows Ganfeng extremely well. Ganfeng is the 51% operator of yeah. the, you know, Kachari Olaraz, um, you know, but Lack also owns, you know, two other assets. Um, so what's your target price on Lithium America's Argentina? Um, full disclosure, mm -hmm. I bought Lithium America's Argentina, you know, a couple of weeks ago for the first, first time I'm back in the stock, you know, in three or four years. And by the way, just uh, all these uh, stock ideas, you know, David, uh, you, you know, um, as an institutional, you know, sell side analyst, but nothing here on Rockstock channel is not financial advice. He's not giving financial advice, but he does give institutions, um, this advice and all of these targets are, are in the public domain. So lithium Argentina, your target price is, is what? $6 a share. So lower than lithium Americas, Americas, and they both have around the same market cap, right? Lithium Argentina, I think is around yeah. 600 million market cap. We could yep. argue, I argue my rationale for buying was that I think it's trading at kind of replacement value, um, with Minera XR, you know, the joint venture having a billion dollars spent on it. And then it yep. they, the other two assets from millennial and arena, you know, for another hundred million dollars, uh, and they're in production, you know, and they have mm -hmm. cash. I don't know yep. what their, their debt is. Do they still have debt? They inherited you know, the convertible debt or, 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 or yeah, some debt from converts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for, from yeah. Ganfeng. So, 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 why is your target price only you know a, a little bit above current price? Yeah, like, look, I think it's just a matter of the on the gross basis, the two companies should be producing the same, right? Over time, um, you know, Lithium Argentina's obviously has has half of most of their properties, you know, outside of Pastos Grande, which you know. I guess we'll, we'll see when they get around to developing that. And I presume at some point they'd need to bring in gang thing to help them finance that. You know, I think it's just a matter of playing like near-term catalyst. Like if you, if you run through like a full net asset valuation and Thacker pass, if you get past financing, you know, we think that it's worth at least $8 a share. Um, and part of that is, you know, you're being in, you're in an IRA compliant jurisdiction. You obviously have an offtake a partner with GM. Lithium Argentina's, um, yeah, look, I, I think that there's there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. And obviously, they have Gang Fang as a preferred pro financing partner there. So I'm sure that that as you get to Kachari Olero Stage 2 and look at expansion there, there's going to have some help with the financing side with Gang Fang if they need to. Um, but I think like you, you just get a, a much larger exposure to those LCEs through Lithium Americas, you know, provided that, of course, that they get a DOE loan. If the loan doesn't come through, then that, that $8 price target is going to be invalidated. What do you think the downside risk to Lithium Americas is if they don't get the loan? Yeah. If you don't get the loan, it's not as though you go bankrupt because you're not spending money right now. You can, you know, you don't have to be doing anything. You don't have to do any early works construction. You obviously have cash on hand. But you're going to need to find like a significant equity uh, financing partner. And, you know, obviously it's going to be up to GM at that point, I would think, um, what they want to do and, you know, how significant 
of a stake they want to take in actually financing the property. If, if, if GM wants to put the bill for the entire, you know, Thacker Pass and arrange some sort of financing arrangement that way, um, that, that's certainly an option. But, you know, of course, if, if it was confirmed that a DOE loan was rejected for Lithium Americas, don't expect the stock to stay exactly where it is today. Yeah. There's a huge downside. But in Lithium Argentina, presumably, there's a lot less. But you, you basically think it's a... It's Argentina, you know, it's controlled by a Chinese company, right? So the exposure and the EBITDA, forward EBITDA, which is your main focus, is uh, well, an overall Lithium Argentinos is not controlled by a Chinese company. It's the... No, no, okay. But, but the, main asset, the, the main asset is. Yeah, yeah. And that can, 20, that can obviously be, that can be a benefit and that can be a detriment to value depending on how you view it. Yeah, I... I, I uh, it, it's not a, I'm not denigrating at all, but you, you have in, in Thacker Pass, you have, you know, made in America, it's all America, it's huge, you know, DOE, yep. uh, going to supply that, you know, in Lithium Argentina, your, your partner is Ganfeng, they, yeah. they, 20%, or, or 20, 20 year yeah. offtake, you know, for the first half and 51% ownership, you know, which is a fine thing. Like for some people sure. like, that's good. You want to partner with Ganfeng, the best operator in the business. Um, you know, but your exposure to it is, uh, you know, the, the, what, what do you think the probability of, you know, Piedmont, you know, Lithium Americas or Lithium Argentina is for a, a takeover, if you were to put um, that as an option? Let's look at takeovers that we saw from last year, where you had plenty of folks that felt like they still weren't getting, you know, credible value for the companies that they were selling, right? Um, to see a takeout now, I think it would be, it obviously would be like an element of distress of just someone just throwing in the towel, um, you know, and tossing the keys. I would, I would say that that's, that's extremely low. I, I would think that if you're a management team right now to sell the company at what you would presume to be the bottom of the cycle, you would much rather prefer to wait things out unless you absolutely needed to. And I, I think in all three of those cases, you know, there, there's, there's no impetus to do anything right now. And there isn't necessarily a strategic reason for someone to pick them up right now at, at a price that would meaningfully exceed where they are today. I was more thinking kind of medium to long-term, not, not so much, uh, immediate term. Do you see GM in lacks capital structure or Ganfeng in lithium Argentina's capital structure? as any impediment to a prospective takeover, you know, versus let's say Piedmont, which, you know, not, not necessarily. I mean, I, I think the only difference with GM and, and lithium Americas, for instance, right, is that you have a singular project right now in the United States, um, and you have one offtake customer. So this, this, does another mining company or another lithium company want to, want to own something like that, where you have one customer, you know, Perhaps, but at a certain level, like how much, how much value can you create with an opportunity like that? Um, you know, I, I think there's still going to be quite a bit of interest over time and, and looking at some of the more diversified names, I, I, I'm sure that Albemarle Arcadium, I think is still going to be a very interesting takeout candidate for a variety of folks, just given their upstream footprint, especially as they develop Canada. Um, you know, and, you know, look, Lithium Argentinos, it's. You, you have a partner right in your backyard that obviously is, is uh, you know, as the largest converter in the world, would probably look at acquiring you over time if, if, the, uh, if the deal made sense. 
and if the Canadian uh, regulatory authorities would allow it. <laughs> um, or maybe they could do it at an asset level. Okay, and finally, uh, you cover Lithium Royalty Corp, a sponsor of Rockstock Channel. Um, what's your target price on on that company, and and what's your investment thesis for why uh, investors should own that? Hey, ten dollars a share right now. Um, and I think if you looked at LIRC's portfolio, um, there's been a, a selection bias to I think very high quality projects with well-funded developers um, and, and pretty attractive jurisdictions, right? And I think uh, as certainly with the Lithium Royalty Corporation, the royalty structure is one that they don't really bear financial risk through a bear market. They obviously will have less cash flows, but the company was already in its infancy. You only really had, uh, you know, Grota de Cirilla with Sigma, um, Mount Catlin, uh, online uh, this year, so it's like as as you have this sort of wedge of projects coming online in twenty four or twenty five, uh, you have Mariana uh, with Gang Fang, you have uh, you know Atlas Lithium's project in, in Brazil and Minerais, uh towards the end of two thousand twenty four. You, know, you have uh, obviously Sayana and what's happening at Moblons. So they just put out that that PFS the other day, nine hundred million and change. Um, and then obviously you have very attractive exposure to Winsome Resources portfolio. So then you, you have a number of projects where obviously the lithium macro is going to be weighing on how you think about the valuation. But as long as you can develop those projects and bring them online, um, yeah, I, I think they come out of the other side of this looking pretty attractive. Not to mention the fact that non-dilutive financing sources like royalties uh, tend to be pretty attractive and pretty opportune in, in bear markets like now. You know, they made a number of acquisitions last year. I, I would surmise that they're probably going to do some things this year as well. Okay, that sounds great. So it's a way, rather than just buy an ETF of, uh, you know, junior miners or junior and senior miners, this is a way to play, you know, an actively managed portfolio of uh, largely hard rock assets, but high quality ones. Um, and you mentioned... The main drivers for it, you know, Mount Catlin actually is going to be small, um, but if you believe in Sigma, you know, that's good. And then down the track, you mentioned some Atlas, uh, Mariana, uh, which doesn't have that much of a profile, but Gamfin controls that, but that could be interesting as well. With something like uh, a royalty corporation, how do you, if at all, how do you adjust how you value it with a changing interest rate? environment do you see it as a as a yield play how do you compare it against the straight equity yeah sure you know any royalty company is inherently a yield play over time and you look at the amount of distributable cash flow and and periods of you know higher interest rates um obviously your yield has to be a bit more competitive um but you know, again, it's, it's, we, we tend to just use a net asset valuation of what we think like royalty companies over time, you know, tend to trade in parity of NAV or premium to NAV, just given some of the scarcity value of the projects that they have. Um, so we, we look at that as like a, an interesting precedent of a way to start. Um, and you have a full calendar of all the projects that they have coming online and they're in their portfolio. Um, and that's, a. Uh, you know, that that's how we prefer to use it. You know, the, the higher interest rate environment really just influences the discount rate, which for a company like this, you know, you're already using substantial amount of discount rates 
in the project since many of them are so far out and with, you know, many developing names. Thank you very much, David, uh, for joining us again on uh, this Tuesday afternoon and updating us uh, post earnings and um, sharing your views on the, uh, you know, not super yet um, optimistic. You know, if you were optimistic, you know, we, we would be, um, you know, closer to the end of the bull cycle than the beginning. <laughs> I'd like to think so, that at least from my seat that if I was optimistic that we're at the beginning of the bull cycle but yeah you know, that's 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 fair yeah. okay depends on your time horizon so uh we shall see thanks again David and I look forward to catching up again sometime in the not too distant future